He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came to and said to him, Why does John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed and sore the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. All right, thanks, Rich, for reading that for us, and thanks to all who are involved in helping lead the worship and serve us in that way. Many of us show up at about, you know, 9.20, some of you 9.35 instead of 9.25, but uh, lots of people have been here since about 8.30, even 8 o'clock, some even earlier than that, uh, just helping with the worship service. So it's a blessing that uh, folks can use their gifts and help us, help us worship together. <clears throat> Let's once again ask God to lead us through this particular passage this morning. And uh, as I'm praying, just I encourage you to pray along with me that God would use his word in your hearts now. So let's pray. God, thank you for our time that we can gather here this morning around your word. So many other things going on in life. We've prayed about those today. Now we just ask that as we gather around your word specifically, that you would use it as bread for our souls, uh, that you would use it to lead us and encourage us, that you would use it to show us more of who you are. And so um, we ask that you will do what we can't do for ourselves in planting it into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So authority is an interesting reality. Um, authority <clears throat> is the power or the right to give orders, to lead in certain directions, to make decisions that will influence others. But how authority is exercised can range widely. You think about it from a parental perspective. Some parents exercise their authority in a wrong way with harsh words and explosive reactions, but they do get children to follow their authority. Others exercise authority in firm ways, showing patience yet conviction and using truth to plant it on the seeds or on the hearts of people. 
Some presidents exercise authority by coercion. We've seen that on display. You must fight. Others aim to use their authority by persuasion. I'll stay and fight. Authority is just an interesting reality in how different people employ it. Well, as we look at our study in Mark today, we see two stories of how Jesus established his authority. And he does this in two particular ways, which are going to do the, be the two points on your outline. First is Jesus establishes his authority by simply calling. Jesus calls. And then second, Jesus establishes his authority by leading. Jesus leads. And we'll go through those two points this morning in the sermon. Now, if you're joining us, we've been in the Gospel of Mark. Let me do a quick review for you so you're caught up to speed with us. The Gospel of Mark opens up with an identity of Jesus. There are two identities that Mark gives to Jesus. First, he's called in 1 verse 1, he's called the Christ or the Messiah. So the Old Testament is full of prophecies that a Messiah is coming, and Christ is simply another name or another word for Messiah. A Messiah is a deliverer, and so the people of God are anticipating this deliverer who is going to show up on the scene and provide deliverance for them. The second name that that Mark gives Jesus, or the second identity, is that he is the Son of God, meaning that he is God. His essence is divine. And so here's this Messiah who has showed up, a deliverer, and he's not just any old human. He's in the flesh human, but he's also God. He's present among his people. And so Mark wants us to know these two realities. He is the deliverer, and we'll see how he delivers. And he's not just a simple human alone. He's also God. Now, there's a message that Jesus has. That's the message of Jesus. And these are the first words coming from Jesus' mouth in chapter 1, verse 15. And it says that when Jesus arrived, he said, the time is fulfilled. And we've looked at that phrase, fulfilled, meaning the time is accomplished. This era in the past is coming to an end. That time is done. So what's the new era? He says the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, in response to the kingdom, repent and believe. But what is this kingdom? The kingdom is... God's rule and reign in our lives. And so here is Jesus who is showing up on the scene. He is the deliverer, the son of God, and he has a message that the kingdom of God that we've been anticipating from the Old Testament is now here. But any Johnny-come-lately can say words. So what Jesus does is he says, I'm going to show you that my words should be believed And throughout chapter 1, Jesus validates his message by performing miracles. So Mark strings along very powerful miracles where we would say, man, if he can do that, I better believe his message. And so he walks into a synagogue, and there's a demon-possessed person, and Jesus is teaching with authority. This guy stands up, and Jesus rebukes the demon and casts the demon out of him. People are like, this guy is different. And then he goes into Peter's house where Peter's mother-in-law is, and she's sick with a fever, and he heals her from that fever. She's restored back to health. Again, wow. And then third, there is this leper 
that approaches Jesus. And you know lepers are unclean according to the law. Their disease is highly contagious, and you're supposed to stay 50 paces away from the population if you're a leper. And this leper comes up to Jesus, and Jesus does something scandalous. He, t- he reaches out his arm, and he touches this man with, who is without hope and heals the man. And so Mark is showing us this guy is who he says he is. Now, there's two important developments that are taking place as we move along in the Gospel of Mark. The first development is the authority of Jesus. The last miracle that Jesus performs is in chapter 2. We covered this two weeks ago. A paralytic is brought to Jesus. He's lowered down through the ceiling so that he can have access to Jesus in this crowded house. And instead of healing the man right away, which you expect Jesus to do right away, after all, he's been performing miracles. Instead of healing the man right away, this paralytic is lowered down in front of Jesus, and Jesus says this, your sins are forgiven. Now, in that moment, there are religious leaders, and their nose just gets out of joint with this. Because that statement, your sins are forgiven, is blasphemous because only God can forgive sins. We talked about this, that sin is immorality. It is lawlessness. And the reason why it is immorality or lawlessness is because God has drawn a line, if you will. And anything that crosses that line is sin. And so... If you speak evil, if you steal, if you lie, you cross this line, you've crossed this boundary, and you've sinned. Now, who have you ultimately sinned against? You've sinned against the one who has drawn the line. You've sinned against God. And so for somebody to come along and say, paralytic, your sins are forgiven, these religious leaders are saying, wait a second, he hasn't drawn the line. God has drawn the line. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus sees them reasoning this out in their hearts, and he tells them, now, what is more difficult for me to say to that man, your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, rise, take up your bed and walk? Anybody. I mean, I could talk to any of you. I could say to Dan, Dan, your sins are forgiven. I could say to Phil, Phil, your sins are forgiven. We'd be like, yeah, nice words, but prove it. And so Jesus turns to the paralytic and says now in front of everybody that you might know that I have the authority to forgive sins. Now, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And this paralytic who's been laying on a cot has strength that's immediately brought into his body, and he can rise and get up and walk. And the religious leaders are stunned for two reasons, because of the miracle that Jesus just performed, but also because of the Old Testament language that talks about this kind of act. Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6. Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. What will he do? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame Man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. 
Who is doing these actions, according to Isaiah? It's God. So you're left there, being part of that crowd, knowing Isaiah 35, seeing what has just taken place, that this man has authority to deliver from paralysis and from sins, and say, wow, this guy must be who he says he is. So do I believe in his authority? Do I believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins? There's a second development that we've seen, especially starting last week, and that is the hostility of the religious leaders towards Jesus. The hostility of the religious leaders towards Jesus. Now, if you zoom out, we're in chapter 2, and for the next few stories in chapter 2, the religious leaders are getting increasingly frustrated with Jesus because of who he is and what he's doing. It started with the paralytic where he commanded that his sins were forgiven. And this frustration continues to grow to the point that they are going to erupt volcanically at him. Look over at chapter 3, the last story that we'll get to next week. Chapter 3, verse 6. It says, Then the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And so, over the next couple of weeks, what we're going to see is these religious leaders, they hate this guy and they want him off the scene. But this will be part of Jesus' story how the religious leaders are frustrated, how they're angry, how eventually they aim to kill him. Now, That's kind of a long introduction to our passage this morning, which is about Jesus' authority. How does Jesus practice and establish his authority? That's where we begin with point one in our sermon where Jesus calls. So here's the scene. We're out near the Sea of Galilee. He's just healed the paralytic man. He's gone from a crowded house. More people are coming, and... Perhaps he wants to get outside of the city proper of Capernaum, that little village alongside the Sea of Galilee, and he moves towards the sea where he can teach with more open space. In verse 14, the text says that as he was passing by, he saw Levi, and Levi here is more than likely another name for Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. He's Levi, the son of Alphaeus, and he is sitting at a tax booth. Now, several things here. First off, we should understand who tax collectors are. Mark's original audience would have understood who tax collectors are. The Roman Empire had an aggressive tax collection system. Goods and services moved around the empire, in and out of regions, across boundary lines. And tax collectors would sit near the lines of those regions... And the Sea of Galilee would have been one of those lines where people are crossing over from Syria into this particular area. People crossing the Sea of Galilee into Capernaum. And they had their goods and services with them. And so these tax collectors would tax the goods and services that were coming through. Now, that's understandable. But the empire allowed these tax collectors to pay themselves commissions. Commissions that were... So ridiculous that the Jews looked at tax collectors as sinful and corrupt thieves. Thievery is breaking the Ten Commandments and 
So as these tax collectors stole money, extorted them for money, the tax collectors were seen as belligerent lawbreakers. You're breaking our commandment of do not steal. So the Jews were looking at a guy like Levi here, who also is part of the Jewish community, with resentment. So much resentment that these tax collectors were not allowed to go into synagogues because their sin would defile their place of worship. Tax collectors were not allowed to serve as eyewitnesses in Jewish courts because they couldn't be trusted. Tax collectors were cut off from their Jewish families because their thievery would make them morally unclean. And so the Jews just hated these guys. Truly sinful people, sellouts, because they were greedy. And Levi is one of these guys. Now the text says that as Jesus was passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And I think that's an interesting way that Mark uses that term. He saw, there's crowds of people. There's a crowd of people right here. And as Jesus is walking, there's a bunch of different people that he's going to see. But the text wants us to know that he, he saw or his attention rested on Levi. And everybody else would have seen Levi right there too. He's, he's that tax collector that we can't stand. That thief that breaks the commandment, do not steal. We don't want anything to do with him. And Jesus rests his attention on him. And he says to him, Levi, in front of everybody, Levi, follow me. And I just love it. Can you imagine these leaders that are walking along in their robes, kind of studying who Jesus is, this other crowd that is following him because they're looking for hope, and Jesus pausing and saying to that sinner right there, that lawbreaker, you, Levi, follow me. And he rose and followed him. He becomes part of the crowd, but it doesn't stop there. Verse 15, Mark moves right into the next sort of scene that he wants us to see. It says that he, that is Jesus, reclined at table in his, that's Levi's, house. Now, who does Levi hang out with? Not a bunch of put-together religious people. He's hanging out with other tax collectors and sinners. And this word for sinners is not just, you know, people who occasionally slip up and cross that line that we're talking about. The word for sinners in the Old Testament is the ones who are wicked. The wicked shall perish. They do not see God. And here is Jesus in Levi's house just reclining. I mean, this is not some grab-and-go kind of meal here. This is, hey, let's have a gig tonight, and all of my friends are welcome. And there's all the tax collectors, and there's all the wicked people, and there is Jesus. It's like something doesn't fit here right now. And people are starting to see this. I can imagine there's the religious leaders that have kind of followed him outside and followed him around. There, there's Jesus in Levi's house. They're not invited in because they're, they're too good for this. And, and they're outside and they're asking the questions, why is he, this guy who claims to forgive sins, why, why is he doing this? So we move along, verse 16 the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
Now, these Pharisees, they're a breed of their own. Uh, That word Pharisee, we think it actually comes from a word that means separatist. So they are really seeing themselves as distinct and separate from the wicked. And they're asking them, Jesus' disciples who may have been milling around outside the house, why is Jesus inside there? Why is your leader inside there? And Jesus simply says this. Verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician. And we get that. Many of you have been to the doctor this week. You go to the doctor because you're sick. Doctors and sick people go together. The doctors come to help the sick. I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. Here's Jesus saying, there are people who recognize that they have crossed the line of God's boundary here. They see themselves as transgressors against God, And what I have done is I have come into this world as a Messiah deliverer. I have come with the kingdom of God. I have the authority to forgive sins, but I'm only forgiving sins of those people who see themselves as being sick. And this is my mission, to go to those who are sick and say, here is the forgiveness of sins that can be had for you. Now, some people want to take this statement right here or this scene right here and say, look at Jesus going into the dark and seedy places of society. We should do the same. And so some people say, I'll move into the dark and seedy places of society, but not for the purpose of bringing light into it. I'm going to move into those dark and seedy places just because Jesus did. All right pause button, the reason why Jesus would go into the dark and seedy places of society was to bring the kingdom of God there, to bring the good news of forgiveness there. And here is Jesus hanging out with sinners, bringing this message to them. Now, Jesus says, this is why I came. And there's two questions to consider at this point. If Jesus saves sinners, Do you see yourself as a sinner? If Jesus is saying, this is the crowd whom I've come to save, do you see yourself in this crowd that has transgressed God's line as needing his salvation, or would you identify yourself as on the other side? I'm I'm, I'm really kind of all put together and good. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, you might be wondering, Where do I start the so-called relationship with Jesus because I identify with Levi? I can tell. I know that I've crossed God's moral boundaries. I know that I've sinned against him and I deserve judgment, but I never know how to, like, make myself right again. And what I hear out there from religious jargon is if you just kind of get on the other side of that line and keep commandments, then you're good with God. And so I've been trying to dress myself up with goodness for years, but I still feel the weight. I still feel the sin of everything that's gone on in the past. And if I'm honest with myself, I look at myself this last week and I say, there it is again. I cross it again and again. If you're a Christian here or a non-Christian who's asking that question, where do I start this so-called relationship with Christ? 
It begins by seeing yourself as Jesus sees you. We are all sinners. The Bible says in Romans 3 that all of humanity has crossed this line of morality. We have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. Every human is with you, whether they believe it or not. The Pharisees couldn't see their sin. They thought they were pleasing to God. They thought they were righteous. They thought they were good to go. And because of that, they're going to miss the call. But you see your sin. And once you see your sin, you can see the one now who says, I can forgive you of that sin. Jesus is calling you to himself And you respond to that call according to chapter 1, verse 15, by repenting of your sin and believing in Jesus Christ. This is Jesus' message. Repent, turn from your sin, and believe in him. Now, this truth about Jesus coming to save sinners needs to be remembered in our church. None of us sitting here this morning are superior to anyone else. We are all sinners who have been saved by the grace of God if you're a Christian here this morning. We are all Levi's to one extent or another. And so for us, as we gather here this morning and as we sing our songs, we don't come in like looking at ourselves as being well put together and looking down at others. Our attention goes straight to Jesus who says, I covered that sin for you, I covered that sin for you, I came into the world so that you could repent and believe and have forgiveness of sins. We're all in this together. One author wrote, ironically, in one sense, great sinners stand closer to God than those who think themselves righteous. For sinners are more aware of their need of the transforming grace of God. And where sin increased, or where I could see the sin increase, the grace of God abounded more. And so as a local church, if you're a professing believer this morning, we dare not stand in judgment against other people because we're in the same place needing Jesus' grace in our lives. And again, if you're a non-Christian here this morning, the invitation, the call goes out to you of repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe. Come to Jesus this morning where you can have the forgiveness of your sins. Second thought, application here. I have a guy in my life, and I'm just going to call him Dion. Not prime time for you sports fans, but just Dion. There's a person named Dion. He doesn't go to this church or any church that I know of who is very much a sinner, all caps. I don't think there is anything about Dion that I really admire except when I've said hi to him in the past, he'll say hi to me right back. I look at my boys And I hope my boys do not grow up to be anything like him. He's a hot mess in every way. And the temptation for me with a guy like Dion is to distance myself from the mess. It's risky to get near sinners. They're messed up. They come with all kinds of collateral damage. It's like a constant storm is hovering around them. And if you get too close, the winds are going to gust and your life is going to be messed up. They might even hurt you. 
They might say something harsh. They might even test you by saying something mean to see if you're going to stick around. But here's what I see in this passage. Jesus is calling Dion's. Jesus is calling sinners to himself, and the way he does that is by using us right now as his ambassadors to sound the call. Some of you have Dion's in your family. Some of you have Dion's in your neighborhood or at work. Extend the call to your Dion's. And I want to encourage you this week to pray for a Dion. Pray for a sinner in your life this week. Pray that you would see Dion as Jesus saw Levi. Instead of moving yourself back like the religious leaders, like, ugh! Would you be an ambassador and move towards the mess? And do this knowing that the authority of Jesus extends all the way down into the hot, messy spots of society because that's whom Jesus calls. Jesus calls sinners. Would we be willing to go out and follow Jesus for the purpose of calling them to Jesus? So that's scene one, Jesus calls. Scene two, we'll move through this a little more quickly here. Jesus leads. Jesus leads us away from the old and to the new. Now, if sinners are the central focus of verses 13 through 17, this scene with Levi, it appears as though Jesus turns his attention to the righteous. Mark includes a scene for us concerning the righteous. This begins... The third exchange between the religious leaders. There was the paralytic, then there was this Levi, and now here is this exchange about the old and the new. Jesus is moving along, verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And these disciples ask the question Your disciples do not fast. Why do John's disciples, why do the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, briefly, if you don't know, what is fasting? Typically, it's the practice of refraining from food in order to bring requests and urgent needs to God in prayer. It's a way of saying, God, I realize that I want food and I need food, but Lord, this thing in my life is of greater importance, and so I'm going to bypass food because I want to bring this to you in prayer and spend my time praying to you about this particular situation. In the Bible, there was one prescribed fast. That was on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16. So once a year, Israel was prescribed to fast. That was it. But over the course of time, the Pharisees and these scribes had more or less added traditions into their Judaism. And the Pharisees were known for fasting on Mondays and on Thursdays. Not law, but that was just their kind of custom. And so this could have been a Monday or a Thursday where these men are asking Jesus' disciples about this. So the question is being asked with a kind of frustration, we fast because we think this is pleasing to the Lord, but why don't you fast? If fasting is part of the Old Testament law prescribed in Leviticus chapter 16, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus responds with three pictures. Picture number one is found in verse 19. 
Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? I mean, you think about it. There's a groom dressed up in his tux. It's wedding day for him. Weddings are nice. They're important. Two people are coming together. But what's really nice is the feast that happens afterwards. I mean, if you're going to throw a wedding, have some good food afterwards so we can all enjoy it. And there's the groom. (laughs) There's the groom right there in the reception hall. And here's the crowd that comes in. And we're all celebrating because this wedding has just taken place. And so while the groom is in the wedding hall, does the crowd, do the guests kind of stand back to the edge of the room, let the seats remain empty and say, well, it's a bad day to throw a wedding feast because I'm fasting. That'd be ridiculous. You show up at a wedding, you're ready to eat. In the Old Testament, God is referred to as the groom. Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Here is the groom who comes alongside of his bride. Now here's Jesus taking on that same imagery and saying, I'm the groom. And we're about ready to have a marriage here. And should the guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And the answer is no. You hang out with the bridegroom. So connect the dots in your mind. If you don't fast when the bridegroom is present, do you fast when God is present? Well, of course not. That's why my disciples are not fasting right now because I'm standing in front of you. I'm right here. Now, he didn't say it in those words, but that was the meaning. And it's like nail number one in the coffin. Second picture that he gives to them involves a patch. He says in verse number 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Now, I know that for most of you under the age of probably 35, you're not even familiar with patches. (laughs) Holy jeans are like really cool and in. But honestly, when we were young, if you had the hole across your knee, mom and dad would say, oh, no, you got a hole in your jeans. You can't wear those. And so mom would take our jeans, and I can still feel it on the inside of my knee, right? She would clear away the fray, and she would attach a patch over the knee like this. And so people were walking around, little elementary kids at least, that's where I was, with patches on their jeans like that, and it was a little more coarse, and it covered up the hole. And you could feel that difference in fabric on the inside of your knee. It would scrape from the soft jean to the coarse patch. Well, Jesus says, hey, look, you take an old garment. It's gone through the wash. It's shrunk down. It's not going to shrink anymore. It's got a hole in it. If you come and put new cloth or material on that, you stitch it in. You're going to wash that fabric. The old fabric is going to remain the same. But this new fabric that you just sewed on, it's going to shrink down, and it's going to pull away from the old fabric, and it's not going to work. You're going to be left with more of a mess. And his point is this. Don't combine the old 
with the new. And then he gives another picture about wineskins. He says this in verse 22. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skin. So Jews, again, had this very clear concept in their mind of what Jesus is talking about. Animal skins, obviously cleaned and then stitched together around the outside, would form like a, a balloon or You've seen those water bladders that people use when they're going on hikes. And so you could have this bottle that was made, and you would put new wine into that leathery pouch. And new wine ferments, and so the pouch with those gases that are given off begins to expand and expand. Now, that skin could only expand so far, and the aging process of the wine would only go so far, and then they would drink the wine but you have an old wine skin now that's standing over here. And Jesus says, now you're not going to go take new wine and pour it in that old wine skin because the fermenting process is going to take place more and more and it's going to crack the wine skin and you're going to lose your wine. And again, what he's saying is you don't combine the new with the old. Now, what Jesus is talking about here specifically to these Jewish leaders, is that you have lived under a law. You have lived under a Mosaic law in the past. And now a new law, the law of Christ is coming. And you have to be aware that you're not going to take your law about fasting and put it onto the new law of Christ. You can't mix the old with the new. So this is very important theologically. We're moving from the old covenant to the new covenant. We're moving from the law of Moses to the law of Christ. And this law of Christ is going to be impressed on our hearts by the Spirit. We're moving into a new era. Don't try to bring your old patterns with you. We'll get into that more next week as he talks about the Sabbath. But the challenge for these religious leaders is, can I accept that this man is the new. Can I accept that this man is the fulfillment of what the old was talking about? Can I accept that he is the Savior who is here? That my faith would be placed in him specifically now? Jesus is saying, if you are, don't try bringing your old law in with this new faith in me. They can't mix their old with the new. But for most of us this morning, we're not wrestling with Judaism. We're not wrestling with bringing in Old Testament Judaism from our past. It's not the Jewish law that we struggle with. Well, what, how would we apply this? How do we struggle with it? There might be other laws in our lives. Number one is this. There's the law of good works. It's a false law that says, unless I am good enough, God will never be pleased with me. I have to mix in some of my good works and then I mix in the work of Christ and then I can have a relationship with God. I believe in my good works and I believe in Christ. And Jesus would say, no, don't mix the old with the new. Don't mix your good works for salvation and your faith in me. So Paul addressed this in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's all Christ, nothing from the past. 
He did it all for us. And all you have to do is receive him as your savior. And so here is Jesus like new wine. Will I receive this new wine and leave the old behind? There's a second law that we struggle with. It's one that's very much opposite to the law of works. It's the law that we could call of cheap grace or the law of loving myself so that I can have myself and Jesus, so that I can have my sin and Jesus. It's a law that shouts very loud today. It says, hey, here's the new wine of Jesus. Now, young people, all you have to do is bring Jesus into your dating relationships with unbelievers. Just mix Jesus in with this law of your own self. It's a law that says you can bring Jesus, your new wine, into life goals that are driven by greed. All I have to do is just sprinkle in a little bit of Jesus, and now my pursuit of greed is sanctified. It's all good. It's a law that tells you that you can bring Jesus into immoral relationships. After all, God wants me to be happy, right? And this is how I'm happy. I'm happy living this way. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to mix my old in with the new. And Jesus is saying, you can't. It won't combine. You might think it's happening, but it's not happening at all. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. This old is passing away but the new has come. And this is Jesus in his authority saying, come on over, come on over, keep coming, keep coming. It's Christ and nothing else. And so we close this morning just by acknowledging this, that we belong to Jesus and we surrender to his authority. We belong to Jesus And we close by saying we surrender to his authority. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us to read and to digest. And we pray that you will use it in our lives to draw us in closer and closer to yourself. I pray that in each of us, we will have a right response to the truth of this passage here. With your heads bowed, just in the quietness of your heart, will you talk to God? Perhaps it's in reference to Jesus calling you to himself. Perhaps it's in reference to you extending the call of Jesus to others. Maybe you look at your life and you can just be thankful. All I need is Jesus. I don't need these good works for my salvation. I need Jesus. Just talk to God in the quietness of your heart and I'll come back and pray.
God, we thank you that deliverance from sins comes from you alone, in Christ alone. And this morning, that transaction can happen in somebody's life simply by faith alone. We want to We want to proceed in humility before you. And please knock off the rough edges of pride. I pray that you would continually remind us of who we are before you. But then, Lord, as we're reminded of who we are before you, we are just so thankful for you. Thankful for what you've done. We couldn't do it on our own. Thank you for reaching into our lives and saving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.